Good morning. I think I've told the story before. Uh, the minister, and, and he was um, with the church building and uh, noticed a young boy was praying off in a, in a corner after um, the youth group met. He was praying very fervently. And as the preacher uh, came within earshot of the boy, he, he was surprised to hear him saying, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. And the boy finished up, and the uh, preacher went to him afterwards, and, and he, he wanted to um, you know, encourage him for, for praying so devoutly. Um, but he said, I couldn't help but overhear you saying something like, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. What, what was that all about? And the boy replied, well, I just finished taking a geography test in school, and I've been praying as hard as I can that God would make Tokyo the capital of France. Now, how many of you think that that boy's prayers are going to change the capital of France to Tokyo? Good. Perfect response. No one. It's not going to happen, is it? You know, last week we talked about prayers that have power. Paul prayed for the Ephesians and the church there that uh, God would strengthen them by his spirit, that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith, and that they would be rooted and established in love. That's a, a prayer that's going to get God's attention. And Paul's prayer demonstrated two important truths about the church. First, the church doesn't run on our power. We aren't just a, a social organization. We could get together, um, have a meal like we're going to have after service today once a month. We could do that just fine without God, but that would not be the church. We are not uh, the church of human endeavor. We strive to be the church of Christ. Second, when we do try to go uh, through our faith alone, we won't have the fruit of the Spirit growing inside of us. Instead, we will have the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And so Paul, he prayed a prayer that leaned on God's strength and reminded himself and the Ephesians that without God, they could not do anything, but through God, they could do everything. That was a powerful prayer, and it was answered. The church grew, and the Ephesians held fast, and their strength and their faith uh, and their love, all of which Paul prayed for, they survive even to this day. But sometimes, you know, our prayers, they don't seem to create that kind of change. You know, sometimes our prayers disappoint us. You know, God doesn't answer them the way we want him to. You know, prayer is one of the most powerful tools, is the most powerful tool we have. Prayer gives us the power to change the circumstances of our lives. I believe that, I've seen that, and I know that is true. But I also know that there are times when prayer will not change what's going to happen. I mean, God can do whatever he wants to do. He can change whatever he desires to change. We saw that powerfully demonstrated on the cross. But let's face it, unless God really has a good reason to do otherwise, Tokyo will always be the capital of Japan, not of France. And so this week I was reading through Matthew chapter 26, where we find Jesus in the garden just before his trial, and he prays a prayer for something his father isn't going to change. Matthew records for us, starting in verse 36. 
Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them. He went away again and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus, he's in anguish. Luke's gospel tells us uh, that his sweat was like uh, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What a stunning position to be in. Jesus is God. And at that time, he knew exactly what was coming, and he had the power to overcome it if he chose. And yet, Here he is asking his father, give me a way out. Find for me a way not to do this. Tell me there is another way. But when he prayed this prayer all three times, his betrayer walked into the garden. So what happens when God doesn't answer my prayer the way I want him to? What do I do when God seems to say no? What good does it do for me to pray if I'm pretty sure those prayers aren't going to change my circumstances. If I can't move the the capital of Japan or of France to Tokyo. Here, uh, what Aaron read for us in Luke chapter 22, we have Jesus praying for God to take this cup from him. So what does that mean? Yeah, I always thought I knew the answer to this question, but uh, looking through some commentaries on on the passage, I found a, a preacher He did a better job of researching it than I ever could. And he looked back into the Old Testament and found that this image of a cup isn't anything new at all, really. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. And in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 16, it says, Uh, pretty much the same thing when it declares this is what the Lord the God of Israel said to me take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it And, and there are other passages he cited but the point was clear the cup that Jesus asked to be spared of was the one of God's wrath think about that you know the reason Jesus came to earth the reason He took on the form of a man. The reason he preached and taught and healed for uh, three years with the crowds was to come to this very point of his existence when he would endure the punishment of sin even though he hadn't committed it, to endure his father's wrath even though he didn't deserve it. 
Jesus came to die for us. He came to be a substitute. He came to pay a price for our sins. Jesus came to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to taste it for ourselves. That's why he was born. That's why he came. And that is why he died on the cross. And now, just hours before this deed is, is to be done, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. In Luke 22, 42. Three times he prayed uh, for that purpose, that his purpose on earth would come to a stop. So did Jesus think this was going to change his destiny? Did Jesus think this was going to change his circumstance? Did Jesus believe that there's any other way to get the job done? No. He knew better than anyone, better than, than we ever could, what needed to be done and who needed to do it the faultless Son of God. So why pray the prayer? If Jesus knew the Father was going to deny his request, if Jesus knew God was going to tell him no, if Jesus knew his prayer wasn't going to change his destiny on the cross, why pray the prayer? Well, because prayer isn't always about changing our circumstances, about fixing our problems. Sometimes prayer is just about laying hold of God, laying hold of his strength and laying hold of his comfort and laying hold of his will in our lives. I read a, a book by J.B. Phillips the other day uh, where he used an interesting description for how too often we treat God in prayer. He called how we treat God a cosmic bellhop, someone who we call up, we ask him to do our bidding, and then we expect him to be dismissed when we're done with him until we're ready for more help. We act like he should just respond and serve us. And too often, people view prayer as some sort of, of magic incantation we say in order to get what we want. If we say the right words in the right way at the right time, then we'll get everything we've wanted. It all becomes better. But God didn't give us prayer to be influenced by us. That's not the purpose for prayer. He gave us prayer so he could influence us, not the other way around. He wants us to come to him and bring our cares and our concerns before him. But even more than that, he wants us to come to him so our cares and our concerns can be shaped by him, so that we can uh, become more and more aligned with his will. So why should we pray then? Why, if I can't always get what I want when I pray, if I can't always avoid danger or pain or sorrow or death like what Jesus is praying about here in the garden, why should I pray at all? If it can't achieve those objectives, why should I do it? Well, the easiest answer is sometimes prayer does change my circumstances. I've seen when prayer brings about healing. I've seen when prayer has brought people back from the brink of death. I've seen when prayer has defied the belief that nothing will change, but I've also seen times when prayer has a different kind of purpose, a purpose that stands strong in the face of circumstances that may not change. Yeah, a poet wrote, sometimes God stills the storm of the sea, at other times he stills the storms within me. And that is exactly what God does. The night in the garden, Jesus felt a need for that kind of of calm. Maybe not a calm in his circumstances. He knew what was about to happen, but he needed a calm within him. You know, one uh, commentator observed when Luke twenty two forty one said Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. The Greek word there for withdrew 
was with the passive voice. It literally says Jesus was withdrawn. He was pulled back. He needed this, physically pulled down to his knees to pray. He had to talk to his father. He had to share the anxiety of what was being laid upon him. Luke twenty two forty four tells us Jesus was in anguish. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Uh, someone said, where was it that Jesus' sweat was like great drops of blood? Where did that happen? Where was Jesus so in anguish that his sweat became like blood? Was it in Pilate's Hall? Was it on his way to Golgotha? No, it was here in the garden. It was when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death in Hebrews 5.7. If we had witnessed this struggle that night, we might have said, if he is all, if he is so broken up now while he is in prayer, how is he going to be able to endure what is coming next? How do we know when we get to the next chapter, when he is before the seats of the religious and political leaders of the world only to be mocked and humiliated and nailed to a cross, how is he going to be able to handle that if he can't even seem uh, to find his composure in this moment of prayer? And the answer is, it's because of this moment of prayer that Jesus was able to endure that. And when the test finally came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage while everyone else around him, those disciples who were caught sleeping, while Jesus was standing watch, they all fell apart. And what made the difference? It was that time of prayer. It was that prayer that, that Jesus found his strength. It was the prayer that gave Jesus his courage. It was the time of prayer that Jesus found his power to face this pain and the humiliation and the horrors of the cross. That's the kind of prayer that we need to learn how to pray. It's a type of prayer that can give us the ability to face all of the storms of our lives. The 23rd Psalm, we know it well, tells us, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, God knows where you need to be. And if he is your shepherd, he's going to take you there. And when God is your shepherd, he has plans for you. He has a destination in mind for you. And that's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans... I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We know that verse very well. Hobby Lobby likes to knit it on throw pillows for us, but read the next one too. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Now, there are those who try to tell you this promise doesn't apply to you. They say it was a promise only for the Jews of Jeremiah's day. But we know this promise applies more to us than anyone else in history. Paul boldly declares Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God, he does have a plan for you. 
He has good works prepared in advance for you to do. And when we ask, he will answer. But the context of Jeremiah 29 is important because this verse does not mean that God will always answer the way we want him to. Uh, Far from it, in fact. In reality, when God said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, what was happening? Judah was about to be led into captivity. They'd been a bad people, and God was about to punish them for that bad behavior. But even while God was punishing them, even while that was happening, he was still saying, I don't want to hurt you. I have a plan for you. I have a a plan to give you a hope and a future. God still wanted to be their shepherd even when they were being punished for their disobedience. God, he always has a plan for his people. God always has a destination marked out for us, a, a destination where we can have a hope and a future. It may not be the destination where we'll be rich and famous and successful and without any pain or suffering, but it will not, or that's not the point. When God says he has a plan for your life, what he's saying is he has a reason for you to exist. He has a purpose for you, good works planned out beforehand. He's giving you a purpose for your life. And when he is our shepherd, we can go to him in prayer and we can be reminded of that purpose no matter what is happening around us. You know, Jesus, he was in the garden. He was walking through it as David wrote in, in Psalm 23, through the valley of the shadow of death, and yet he feared no evil, not because his circumstances were going to change, not because his destiny on the cross was going to change, but because after that prayer, he was changed. He knew his purpose, and that's the kind of prayer we need today. We need to go to God, not like he's there to serve us, but because we are there to serve him. Now, let's take a step back, because uh, I think we know that. I think we know that God is bigger than we are, and we are here to serve him, not the other way around. But what does that look like practically? What does that prayer where we are in service to God and we are in submission to his will actually look like? Yeah, well, from Jesus' prayer, we, we first know it doesn't mean dishonesty. It doesn't mean that we hide parts of ourselves from God that we're ashamed of. And God wants us to tell him everything. And if we have something on our mind, a need or a fear or anxiety, even if deep down we know maybe we shouldn't have that fear or anxiety or or pain, God still wants us to tell him about it. He wants us to share it with him. He already knows. He he knows everything, and we know less than that. That's what we keep repeating on Wednesday nights. But he wants us to communicate with him. That's why he gave us prayer in the first place, so we could talk directly with our creator. When Jesus uh, prayed in the garden, he was brutally honest. There was no religious platitudes there. There's no sugarcoating what was about to occur. This wasn't a formula prayer. This was Jesus spilling out his heart to his father. Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He knew that what was about to happen. He knew what had to be done, but he still prayed three separate times, essentially saying, I don't really want to do this if there's another way. And there are people who believe that somehow we're going to offend God by being too honest with him, by telling him, uh, telling him about our fears and our disappointments. They're afraid to be open with God about their questions and about their fears. And I mean, life's already turned against them. They don't want God to do that too. 
But honesty and prayer, it's like a release valve. You know, therapists, they understand the need for that. That's why we get to lay out on a couch and, and spill our guts to them. They recognize that talking about what is going on in our lives is important. So our prayers, they need to be honest. But honesty alone, that's not enough. In fact, honesty by itself can destroy the power that we really have in prayer. Why? Because honesty, left to itself, used all by itself, can become an expression of bitterness, of anger. In order to be useful as a prayer tool, uh, God, the, our honesty and our prayer to God must be coupled with the second half of Jesus' prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You know, Jesus' prayer had the power to give him strength because it hinged on accepting the will of God. The prayer that can transform us in our times of weakness and into turning those into times of strength are the ones that are less concerned with moving God towards our will, but instead moving ourselves towards his will. And we need to realize that Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, it was not a prayer of hopelessness or defeat. It was a prayer, or it was not a prayer of surrender in these worldly circumstances, he knew he was going to be a conqueror, and we can be more than conquerors through him. It was a prayer of surrender to his Father's will. And in that surrender, Jesus found the strength to overcome. It was when Jesus prayed the prayer that the Father reached down and comforted him. Luke twenty-two forty-three tells us an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. It's that kind of out-of-this-world supernatural strength from God that I want in my life. And I think we all do want that in our lives. But first, we have to be willing to pray the way that Jesus did. A Sunday school teacher once asked her group of children uh, if any of them could quote the entire 23rd Psalm. And a little four-and-a-half-year-old girl, she raised her hand. She said she would give it a try. The teacher was skeptical but let her go. And she said, the Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. Sums it up, right? That's all we need. Probably the best theology uh, you'll ever see written down. The Lord is my shepherd. That's enough. God is sufficient. And that's the way we need to pray. So let's start today. Last week we uh, wanted to pray for the church that we would pray the kind of powerful prayer uh, Paul did for the Ephesian church. We wanted to pray that kind of prayer this week uh, or last week for the church here in Greenfield. Um, now let's pray the way that Jesus prayed in the garden, a very different prayer, the one that we need equally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are sufficient. You are all we want, and we pray uh, you'll help us remember that. We pray that we will grow in our humility here in Greenfield as we seek to serve you in our community, and that we rely on you to guide everything we do. We know uh, there is nothing hidden from your sight, and so we pray for courage to uh, be more honest with you, to open up our lives, uh, and lean on you for our strength. We pray that uh, we will come to peace with your will being done, that we'll understand when your uh, answer to these prayers is different from what we expect, and that uh, people here today who are suffering will know that they can turn to you for comfort even in the midst of unchanging circumstances. We most of all want to thank you. You sent your only begotten son into the world knowing the cruel and undeserved torture he would endure because you love us and through him we can now talk directly to you. 
We pray uh, we will cherish that tremendous gift the way it deserves. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you realize that sometimes our circumstances won't change and, and prayer isn't going to change the circumstances around us, that we're not going to be able to move the capital of France to Tokyo. You realize that, but you also know that prayer does change things. And you recognize um, prayer can change you. It can change your heart, and, and it can bring you closer to the Father's will, and you want that strength that only God can offer. It starts by telling God that you are ready to serve him rather than asking him to serve you. It starts by submitting your life wholly to God, turning from your past, uh, being washed of it in the waters of baptism, and turning to live a new life where God's will will be done. If you're ready for that today, uh, I ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.